Exodus 23, verses 1 to 13. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners, because you were foreigners in Egypt. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops, but during the seventh year let the land lie unploughed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's uh, pray as we come to, to God's word. Lord God, we praise you that you are a holy God. And we do pray this morning that we would learn something more of your holiness, that you would help us to grow in our love for you and in our obedience to you. Help us to trust you with all of our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if this time last year you were told that in the course of the next 12 months, the government would introduce new laws banning you from having other people in your home, uh, banning you from going to parties, banning you for a short time actually even going to church. I wonder what you would have thought. You'd probably never even have believed them, would you? You might get such laws in a, an authoritarian dictatorship, but not in a democratic country like ours. And yet, of course, that is exactly what happened. And people have on the whole complied with them. The thing with specific laws is that they change according to the time, the place, and the situation. Which may help us as we come on to these next chapters in Exodus, which set out the laws for the people of Israel three and a half thousand years ago. Especially as not many of us may own oxen or donkeys. We don't have slaves and we are unlikely to take somebody's cloak as a guarantee for a loan. A couple of weeks ago when we started this series in Exodus, we, we looked at the, the covenant relationship between God and his people, which is at the heart of this book. God chose the people of Israel to be his holy nation, his treasured possession, in order that they would be a blessing to all nations. And in turn, they promised their obedience and loyalty to, to him as their God. 
the foundation of that relationship was established in the, the Ten Commandments that we looked at last week, which helped us to understand the holiness of God and how far we fall short of his perfect standards. The good news is that uh, although none of us can keep those commandments, God sent us a saviour, his son Jesus, who kept them perfectly and whose perfect life was accepted as payment for the punishment we deserve for disobeying God and his laws. As we put our trust in Jesus for our salvation, we we are born again, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It gives us a new desire, a new ability to obey those commandments. Well, if the Ten Commandments provide us with key principles for obeying God, the next few chapters show us what that looks like in real-life situations. What we have here is what is known as the Book of the Covenant, a book of case law, if you like. These are real-life situations for the people of Israel then. And although our situation today may be different, the principles remain the same. There's much that we can learn from them. So the first lesson is that God's laws show us that we are to bring all of life under him. I think we often quite like to compartmentalize different aspects of our lives. So there is our work, which for many of you, um, you think they'll be outside of work and really understand what you, what you do, and so you don't even bother talking about it. We have our home life, which uh, uh, has different rules that, that apply, where we shouldn't cross over the, our work life. Unless, of course, we're on a Zoom call and uh, maybe our, uh, our toddler appears in the background. We may have a particular hobby. Maybe you're a part of an art class or a, a Pilates group. And again, if people don't understand um, the world of art or Pilates, then we just keep that separate. And we have our faith, what we believe. It's not something we talk about. It's what we, we do on our own or when we go to church. Our fellow Christians all get that, but there's no point trying to, to explain it to somebody who's not a Christian. They'll just think we're, we're weird. And we especially don't try to bring it into the workplace because that's just going to bring problems. Well, that is a totally wrong way of looking at life. Life, as God designed it, is fully integrated. If we have a relationship with God, it's not a, a bolt-on, it's not a hobby. It affects everything else. It affects how we relate to people. It affects the decisions we make. It affects our behaviour in all the other situations. Last week we finished uh, in verses 18 to 21 of chapter 20 with the people afraid of God, staying at a distance, asking Moses to be their mediator. Moses reassured them that they they shouldn't be afraid of God because he, he treasures them. He wants what's best for them. At the same time, a healthy fear of God will prevent them from sinning against him. In verse 21, we're told of of chapter 20 that the people remained at a distance. And as we go into this next section, which uh, runs from verse 22 of chapter 20, right through to chapter 23, verse 19, it starts and finishes with instructions about worship. Verses 22 to 26, God instructs his people to make an altar in which they can make sacrifices and bring offerings to God. What's the purpose of this altar? It's so that the people can approach God. In verse 24, God says, Wherever I cause my name to be honoured, I will come to you and bless you. 
in worship, God is coming to us. If we flick over to the end of the the passage in chapter 23, verse 14 to 19, here God sets out uh, various festivals that the Israelites uh, should celebrate. As they remember their rescue from Egypt, and as they give thanks to God for his ongoing provision of food. And here God says in verse 17, he says, Three times a year all the men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. So again, although God is holy, he promises to come to his people, and he wants them to come to him. He wants a relationship with them. And that is the same today. We can, we can have a relationship with God, although he is a holy God. Because Jesus has broken down that barrier of sin that separated us from him. It's significant, though, that these two passages on worship appear at the beginning and end of this this so-called Book of the Covenant to demonstrate that our worship of God is not something separate from the rest of life. There's no sacred-secular divide. The way we behave when we come together to worship God should not be different to the way we live out our lives in relationship to other people the rest of the week. We can't love God without loving others. As it says in 1 John, and he's given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. There are lots of different areas covered in these chapters. If you want to flick over them in your Bibles, if you've got them open there, what we see is there the relationship between servants and masters and husbands and wives. We look at personal injuries. If you look at these headings in the NIV, there's protection of property. If you go over the page, you see their social responsibility, laws of justice and mercy, and the Sabbath laws, protection for the poor that we heard read out to us by Shaz. If God's people kept the Ten Commandments perfectly, there would be no need for these laws, because nobody would cause injury to somebody else, nobody would steal from somebody else. But they are a recognition that people are not able to keep God's commandments, and therefore it's important to set out the consequences of what should happen in those different situations. We'll come on to that in a minute, but it's important for us to recognize that as Christians we're called to live holy lives. And therefore we need to set an example um, in all of these different areas. We can't put on a, a good front on a Sunday when we come to church and go into the week and be an unfair boss a disrespectful or a difficult worker, an unfaithful husband or wife, someone who can't control their anger, somebody who's not happy with what God has given them at once, what everybody else has, somebody who's sexually immoral, somebody whose word cannot be relied upon. We're called to bring the whole of life under worship to God. In Colossians 3, it says this about how we should relate to, to one another. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And it finishes in verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
What a wonderful picture of a, a community living as God intended it to be. And the passage continues to uh, provide in specific instructions about relationships in the home and in the workplace. Whatever we do, we are called to do it all in the name of the Lord. We are bringing all of our lives under the Lordship of Christ. Well, secondly, the next lesson from these, these chapters is God's laws demonstrate his justice. We said last week that the Ten Commandments reveal something of God's character, that he values life, truth, faithfulness, etc. These laws also reveal something of God's character, and in particular, that he's a God of justice. And there are three main ways in which that comes out in these various laws. The first of those is a concern for the vulnerable. section on Hebrew servants at the beginning of chapter 21 is not condoning slavery, but it's ensuring that in a relationship of master to servant, or we could say today an employer-employee, that there is no abuse in that relationship. Here it says that the, the relationship shouldn't be permanent, that the servant is able to walk free after seven years. Likewise, in verse 10, God is not condoning polygamy or adultery, but he's ensuring that if a husband breaks the marriage covenant, if he abandons his wife, then she is released from her obligations to him. In the section on personal injuries, the concern is that there is suitable restitution or compensation for any harm or loss caused to another. So, for example, if two people get into a fight and one is injured, the guilty party must pay the injured person for, for any loss of time, see that the victim is completely healed. In other words, pay their medical expenses and loss of income. A principle that is in law today, but exploited by, by greedy people looking for an easy way to claim a lot of money for themselves. One of the most notorious cases being there, the woman who uh, sued McDonald's for 2.2 million after spilling her hot coffee over her lap while sitting in her car. Other vulnerable people in this section include unmarried women. We heard earlier, didn't we, from Pastor Kevin, the situation in Iswatini of teenage pregnancies, of abuse in the home. Other vulnerable people are the poor here, the orphans, the foreigners. As you go into the New Testament, there are many instructions to, to Christians about looking after the vulnerable. And we see what that looks like in practice in the, uh, the early church. In the book of Acts, we read these words. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So I, here in the church, we have a benevolent fund. It's great to live in a country with a welfare state, but we know that there will be, always be those who fall through the gaps, who, who struggle, and it's good to be able to support them in their time of need. Another aspect of God's justice that comes out in these laws is that the punishment should fit the crime. Because of our sinful natures, our, our natural response when we are wronged is to get our own back. Um, we might call it justice, but what we really mean is revenge, because our pride has been hurt. The purpose of the law is to ensure justice is done, which means that the punishment 
should fit the crime. The way that's phrased here in verse 23 of chapter 21 is um, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc. Now remember these are laws for the judge to apply to specific situations, explaining that any punishment that is determined will not exceed the offence. What this is not is that this is not an excuse for vigilante justice. It's not if somebody's taking your eye, go and take their eye out. We know that from Leviticus 19, which also contains various laws, and where it says there, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Well, sadly, even in this country, at different times in history, the punishment has exceeded the crime. If you're, you're a Poldark fan, you'll know that at that time in this country there were over 200 offences that were punishable by death, including stealing sheep, cutting down trees, and pickpocketing. When Jesus came, he said this, he said, You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them, the other cheek also. Now you might think, well, doesn't that contradict what these laws are saying? Well, not really. It's actually reinforcing what it said in Leviticus. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is not saying that there should not be any retribution. But that is for the courts to decide, not for you as an individual to take the law into your own hands. Do not allow yourself to give in to the personal desire for retaliation and revenge. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Just because we have a right of action against someone doesn't mean we have to exercise it. Sometimes the better course of action may be to forgo that right and show mercy, which is ultimately what Jesus did on the cross. What also affects the punishment is the consideration of um, intent. For example here, um, it talks about the difference between deliberate murder or accidental manslaughter, which is described in verse 13 of chapter 21 as, if it is not intentional, but God lets it happen. There's the principle of negligence. If the, the owner of a bull has been warned that his bull is dangerous, and doesn't keep it penned up, and it goes and kills somebody, then the consequences are different from a first-time incident. We might not have bulls, but it's the same for us today with dogs. If we have a dog which we know is dangerous, and we don't do anything about it, and it injures somebody, then we are liable. The third aspect of God's justice that comes out in these laws is that guilt must be determined. Back in chapter 18, in the cases of uh, dispute, um, they were all coming to Moses to deal with him himself. His wise father-in-law told him that if he carried on like that, he would soon have a, a breakdown. So he told him to delegate. Delegate to others who can serve as judges. Simple cases they can decide themselves, the difficult ones they can bring to you. In order for the judges to decide, um, they needed uh, a book of law, which is what this is. 
without fair legal systems in which guilt is determined impartially. There's the potential for, for lynch mobs. There's a potential for corrupt authorities who imprison people for crimes they never committed. Which is what happens to many Christians today in many parts of the world where their only crime is to believe in Jesus. Ultimately, these laws are trying to bring some order to life in an imperfect world where people have rejected the rule of God. Sadly, justice will not always be possible in this world. The good news, though, is that one day there will be a day of judgment when Jesus comes again and justice will be done. When that day comes, we can be assured that those who endured persecution for the sake of Jesus will see justice. We know it will be fair because Jesus is a perfect judge. And the greatest crime is to reject God. And that will receive the the punishment it deserves, deserves of eternal condemnation. And that should fill us with um, fear and trembling, unless we put our faith in Jesus. Because if we have, then we know that Jesus has already taken our punishment for us. We've been declared righteous in the sight of God. But if we haven't yet done that, then we can't afford to, to put it off because we don't know how many days we have left in this life. God's laws show us that we're to bring all of life under him. God's laws demonstrate his justice. And finally, God's laws are meant primarily for his people. These laws were made for the people of Israel. Uh, Like the Ten Commandments, they would have been useful for all nations at that time, but because, because other nations didn't worship God, they would have made no sense of them. For example, some of the nations indulged in child sacrifices, demonstrating a complete lack of respect for human life. God has chosen Israel out of the nations, given them laws that would enable them to worship him and express that in love for one another. As we go into the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. The promise that they would be a blessing to all nations. As the gospel goes out, people of all nations turn to Christ. They join his kingdom. But that brings an added complexity. If all God's people are together in the same place, then that's fairly straightforward to have the same set of laws. But if they're scattered across the world and uh, have to come under the laws of different countries, then what do you do when God's law conflicts with the laws of the land? Put it another way, what right do we have as Christians today to impose our standards of behaviour on others? Well, firstly, we have to remember that we are expected by God to submit to the laws of the land. Romans 13 says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. We think of the laws of our land, the UK. They contain the principles that we've seen in these laws um, in Exodus, as we've looked at already. They're designed for the the good of society, to ensure it uh, functions in an orderly way and doesn't break down. 
But what about the instances where they do conflict with God's laws? Well, our response as Christians will depend um, on the impact of that law. It may be helpful to think of them in these three different situations. First of all, what happens when they deny us freedom to practice our faith? Some churches have taken the view that um, prohibiting churches from gathering in the previous lockdown uh, did just that. And the government should have done what they're doing now, which is giving churches freedom to make that decision themselves. Or whatever you think about that, I don't believe that in that case the government deliberately chose to discriminate against those with a religious faith and deny their freedom. And I think it would have been wrong to disobey the law at that time. But there are subtle ways in which we are losing our freedom um, to practice our religion. We should have the freedom to express our beliefs in, in public, even if people disagree with them. That's becoming harder. The so-called hate laws which can be easily um, uh, manipulated. We should not be forced to do something in the workplace that goes against our Christian conscience. And again, that's becoming harder. Our allegiance to God comes before our allegiance to the authorities. There are many believers in other countries who do not enjoy the freedom we enjoy at this time. Open Doors have just published their latest world watch list of the top 50 countries in the world where Christians suffer the most persecution. It's a grim read, but I would encourage you to to read it and to pray for them. Secondly, what about when the law fails to protect the vulnerable? With Christians like William Wilberforce, John Newton, who changed the laws of this land to, to make the slave trade and, and slavery itself illegal. They wanted to protect the vulnerable. Most vulnerable in our society today are probably babies in the womb. Nine million of whom have been killed since abortion was legalized in this country. The liberalisation of the gambling industry has, has wrecked the lives of many financially vulnerable people. There are calls for euthanasia to be legalised, which again would put pressure on the elderly and the vulnerable to end their lives of being a, a burden to others. In these situations, we have a responsibility as Christians to, to lobby our MPs, to support Christian organisations who are doing that on our behalf, to call for greater protection in the law, against the vulnerable. And then thirdly, what about when the law permits behaviour that dishonours God? Well, this is a harder one, isn't it? Because we cannot force people to follow Jesus, who do not follow Jesus, to behave in a certain way. You know, you cannot tell two people who are gay that they cannot have sex because it dishonours God when they don't even believe in God. You can't legislate to change people's behaviour. That is why our greatest responsibility as Christians is to proclaim the gospel, to live out the gospel. It is the gospel that will change lives. When people see Jesus Christ and all his beauty and glory, the joy and the freedom that following him brings, that is when they will become motivated to change their behaviour, as many of us will, will testify ourselves. You give up the old way of living because uh, God has put a new heart in you. 
for all the things that the world finds attractive. Jesus is far more attractive. For all the struggles that uh, people in the world have, Jesus has an answer. As Christians, it's tempting to take the easy option to, to withdraw, to let other people get on with leading their lives their way. But we do have a responsibility to help people see that there is a far better way. And the reason we want to do that is because we love people as Jesus did. That is why he came into this world. And to do that, we need to, to better understand the culture we are in. Just why one of our priorities as a church this year is to focus on cultural engagement. And we're going to be having a series of Zoom sessions in coming weeks, coming months, tackling some of those key cultural issues. Well, as we finish, we've looked at a lot of um, different things this morning. Uh, but the key thing is that if we choose to follow Jesus, then we will want to bring all of life under his lordship. We will seek to live in a way that, that honours him. And we will follow his example of a heart for justice, a heart for the vulnerable. We will long to see others come to know the joy of having their lives changed by him. And so as we go into this week, let me leave you again with these, these words from Colossians 3. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Or put it another way, as our verse for the year will tell you, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Let's pray. Lord God, we do praise you that you are a holy God. And part of that holiness means you are a just God, a God who loves justice. And we've seen some of that in your law this this morning as we looked at this book of Exodus. Father, we pray that we would bring all of our lives under the Lordship of Christ, that we wouldn't separate our faith from the rest of our, our lives. There'll be our faith that determines how we live out our lives in every situation in which you've placed us. Lord, we praise you for your justice, and we pray that we too would show that justice to others. We pray that we'd share the same concern for the vulnerable. Lord, help us to to look after them, to care for them. And Lord, help us to grapple with these issues where there are laws which um, do not defend the rights of the vulnerable. We pray that we would um, not just um, ignore them, but lobby for them to be changed. And Lord, ultimately, we want to see everybody come under your lordship because we know the joy, the peace that brings us. We want to share that with them. Lord, so help us to be witnesses for you in the way we live out our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.